Thank you for reading that, Tracy. That is the uh, introduction to the chapter in uh, Charles Swindle's commentary on the verses that we're going to be looking at today. And I read them a couple of months ago, and uh, I tried to figure out how could I steal that because it was so good. Maybe I could come up here and act that out or something. And I said, no, 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 no. Tracy will do justice reading that. And so thank you so much, uh, Tracy. I love I loved the last line that uh, Tracy read that Peter realized that everything was going to change. Everything. And everything changed, even for Peter, who a few weeks ago, we we looked at the fact that he had an epic failure in life. But everything changed for Peter. He experienced radical life change. Uh, Probably most pertinent to the letter that we're looking at, 1 Peter, uh, was his about face concerning the question of Jesus' death. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, Peter went from denial and rejection that Jesus would even think of dying uh, to his restoration, to Peter powerfully proclaiming the death of Jesus as he preached, uh, to what really lies underneath the letter of 1 Peter, which is Peter finding in the death and resurrection of Jesus the secret of life. Uh, we see how Peter's life radically changed just in the fact that, that here was a guy who denied even knowing Jesus because he was afraid of what that might mean for him. Uh, he cowered in fear when that servant girl accused him of even having been an acquaintance of Jesus. And yet here in First Peter, we see him uh, writing to and encouraging these suffering Christians uh, on how to suffer. And as we've been talking about, how, to, how not just to survive, but how to th- uh, thrive in the midst uh, of hostility, in a, in a world that's not so friendly uh, towards our faith. And such a radical life change that 30 years after the empty tomb experience that Tracy just read to us about, just shortly before Peter would lose his life because of his radical faith, Peter pens the words that are before us this morning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us new birth. Thirty years later, and Peter still bursting with praise and enthusiasm, overwhelmed by who God is and what God has done for him, that he bursts into praise. Praise be to God. Or your translation might say, blessed be God. Uh, One of the Bible translations out there, and I didn't check which one it was. A commentator mentioned it. It may be the message. Sounds like something Eugene Peterson would, would, would paraphrase. What a God we have. How about you? How about me? I was doing some math this morning. That's a lot longer than 30 years for me. I'm coming up to 50 years since I gave my life to Jesus. And for some of you, it might be closer to three years. Maybe it's not even a year since you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Are you still bursting with praise and excitement and and overwhelmed by what God has done for you and, and who God is or not so much. 
Why is it that so many of us have lost some of that joy of our salvation? Why have we lost the praise? Why do some of us, some of the time, walk around sad and angry and and, and depressed? Overwhelmed with the circumstances uh, in our life? What's caused the joy to fade? I think for some of us, we, we find ourselves in circumstances, and I don't want to belittle the circumstances, not at all, but we find ourselves in, in the midst of troubling circumstances and trials and, and difficulties, and we let them have the final word in our life. And, and some of us have, find ourselves caught up in the busyness and the distractions of life, and, and we've made those things our priority in life. And I'm sure I could list a bunch of other reasons and, and excuses, whatever you want to call them, But I think underlying all of them is this one thing. That we failed to grasp and to hold on to the greatness of our salvation. Peter's writing to these suffering Christians, and we've talked about it each week now for the last uh, three or four weeks. Uh, Peter's writing to these Christians who are suffering. They have been scattered. They have uh, been rejected by friends and family and by society. They have faced opposition and trial. Uh, some of them have been tor- tortured and persecuted. Uh, they've been threatened with jail. Some have been thrown in jail. Some have been threatened with death. Some have even met their death. And uh, we've noticed that as we started Peter's letter to these Christians, that he starts it off in a way that perhaps we wouldn't have started it off. He doesn't really spend a whole lot of time defending who he is and and his apostleship and doesn't really give us a whole lot of details about the the geographical situation that they're finding themselves in. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, he doesn't go back to even some of the Psalms like what Allison read this morning. uh, A Psalm of comfort, that God has pity and comfort and shows mercy towards his people who are unjustly treated. He, He doesn't go start with those things. Instead, he starts with a discourse on salvation. He explains to them in verses 1 and 2 how God the Father, how God the Spirit, and how God the Son have worked together to bring about their salvation. And as we continue into verses 3 through 5 this morning, we're going to see that Peter follows suit. Before he starts focusing on their problems, he is going to continue to talk about their salvation. He's going to break into praise. And again, it might not be the way that we would have started the letter, but as we saw last week... Peter's on to something. Peter knows that when we begin to grasp the greatness of our salvation, it will bring comfort and encouragement and strength and motivation, even when we find ourselves in the midst of horrible circumstances. Now, I don't think anyone would have faulted Peter if he started right off the bat talking about their problems and, and giving us great detail about the trials. Some of the stuff we'd love to know. What these trials were that his readers were enduring. No one would fault him for that. But Peter sets the problems aside just for a little bit longer. And he breaks into praise. And I think it's significant that Peter sets aside discussion of problems 
and continues to praise God and to, to, to explain what a great God we have. Because Peter has figured something out in life. And that is that God comes first. And when we start with God, it helps us to see our problems in proper perspective. But the flip side is true as well. If we start with our problems, sometimes we don't see God at all. And we know fellow believers who have found themselves in real horrible circumstances. And we know the ones who put God first. And they see their problems, their trials, their tragedies through the eyes of God. I'm Facebook friends with someone. I don't even know who they are. I don't know how I became friends with them. Their, their son, actually it would be the brother. I've, I've become Facebook friends with the whole family uh, through a son that I don't know who he is. But I'm his friend. And, they've, and I don't mean to make jest of this because it's, it's a horrible tragedy. Their family's gone through a suicide of their son. But they are such a godly family. And even in the midst of this horrible tragedy, praise and worship of God and, and seeing God at work, and, and like it's just unbelievable. And, and yet, I know other people who, who find themselves in the midst of troubling times. Again, I'm not belittling the circumstances. And their eyes are on their problem. And it's no wonder their main question when it comes to God is, where are you, God? Where is God when it hurts? Where is God in my life? Why isn't he active uh, in my life? You see, when we put God first, God's children instinctively praise him. And so what is it that's so great about this salvation that should cause us, like Peter, to erupt in praise and say, what a great God we have. Well, let's take a look at verses 3 through 5 uh, in First Peter and discover what Peter has to say to his original audience and then, of course, to us as well. Verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now verses 3 through 5 are actually part of a bigger passage. Uh, They begin what uh, is often called the doxology of chapter 1, verses 3 through verses 12. And in the original language, it's actually one sentence. So verse 3 through to the end of verse 12, one long run-on sentence. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I took English in high school, my teachers weren't too thrilled with a run-on sentence that was that long. But I don't know Greek, but my understanding from reading commentators is that Peter's grammar is elegant, uh, and that his profundity in expressing the topic of salvation uh, is, is, is wonderful. So, so elegant is his grammar that some have argued that Peter could not possibly have written this. He was a fisherman from Galilee. How could he write such a beautiful doxology? And that's why some will suggest that, that Silas, 
helped Peter as he wrote 1 Peter. And then others have defended that Peter, over 30 years of, of being in and, uh, in and around Rome, uh, would have uh, picked up this uh, ability to write in Greek. That's a, a topic we don't... Zach, you and I can talk about this one later. But uh, we'll, we'll move on. But it is a beautiful, beautiful, long run-on sentence. So we're just going to handle it in chunks. We're just going to look at verses 3 uh, through 5 today. And I'm so glad that Peter, he's going to answer the question, what's so great about this salvation? And I'm so glad he's not like some of the professors I remember uh, from university and from seminary and some of the teachers from high school who would have handled a subject like this uh, and made it really boring. Uh, Monotone would have told us to grab our notebook, Grab out the syllabus, and I'm going to give you answer one, monotone, answer two, monotone, answer three, uh, and, and answer four. Peter doesn't do that. He begins bursting with praise. What a great God we have. And I think it's significant what, what Peter does here. Because it, it speaks to me of what our intent, what our, what our goal should be as we are presenting spiritual truth from this platform. I shouldn't be content with just imparting biblical knowledge, biblical facts. You shouldn't just be content with gaining biblical knowledge. The real goal of this time should be real life transformation through God's word and the power of the Spirit. And I say that and I find that very significant because in essence what I'm going to do for the rest of the time this morning is answer the question, what's so great about our salvation? And I got four answers to share with you. And I hope it's not going to come across monotone. I hope you're not going to leave here going, man, that was boring. I could have just read the notes. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit is going to take these spiritual truths and is going to burn them in our heart and in our minds and that we are all unanimously going to come to the end of this time together, bursting with praise concerning what a great God we have. So let's pray that the Holy Spirit would do that work in our midst as we continue in this passage. Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, before us is a text uh, that has so much truth and so much richness to it. And Lord, I confess that I know I could easily butcher it. I could leave people bored, that they could just walk away feeling like they've been in a theology class. I don't want that to be the case, Lord. Father, may these truths be what your Spirit uses to change us. Burn them into our heart and into our mind. God, cause us to see afresh perhaps even for the first time, the greatness of our salvation and the greatness of you to the praise and glory of your Son. We pray it in his name. Amen. So as we continue in the text, what a great God we have. He has given us new birth. That's the main point of these verses. Everything else relates 
to that main idea. What Peter wants his readers to understand, what Peter wants us to understand, is if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been given new birth. We are a new people. Uh, your Bible may say that, that God has caused us to be born again. That really brings us back to what we talked about last week because it's a real strong statement about God's sovereign activity on our behalf uh, as, as He chooses us and the Spirit draws us and we come to that point where we choose yes or no uh, to the gospel. And when we say yes, in obedience to Jesus and, clen- and we receive the cleansing of His blood, we are given new birth. To be born again means to receive the actual life of God in our soul. And the result is that we are a brand new person. The key word being new. Paul says that if you put your faith in Jesus, you are a new creation. And everything about you is new. You have a new life. You have a new hope. You have a new confidence. You have a new perspective. You have a new outlook. You have new joy. To be born again means to have a change in status before God. That's why I wanted Ephesians 2 to be read because that really informs us about what our status before God is in our sin. And yet Peter, uh, writing a little bit later in this letter, and I'm even going to go beyond what Zach shared, in, in, uh, in 1 Peter 3 verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, To bring you to God. And so to be born again means we have a changed status before God. And so what a great God we have. He's given us new birth. But what's so great? And maybe I don't even have to ask this question or answer it. But what's so great about this new birth? Well, when you consider Ephesians 2 especially, it tells me that God rescued me from myself. And if you are a follower of Jesus, God has rescued you from yourself. Like just those first three verses of Ephesians 2. As for you, as for me, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live when we followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh And following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And this new birth tells us that God has saved us from ourselves. And if God has saved us from ourselves, that tells me that I couldn't save myself. Rather, God did it. Or as your translation might say, God caused it. Well, I was in sin. Well, I was dead in my transgressions. While I I was fleeing God as a rebel, as I was at enmity with God, God acted unilaterally, unilaterally on my behalf. He alone is the reason for my salvation. He alone is the reason for your salvation. All glory and honor go to Him for your salvation. We could not bring about our spiritual birth any more than we could bring about our physical birth. You know, I think the reason that some people fail to grasp the greatness of their salvation 
is because they've fallen for the delusion that we somehow are to take credit for at least part of our salvation. And I know it's because the Spirit draws us to Jesus and and, and we have the responsibility to choose. But our responsibility to choose, to say yes or no, is nothing to do with the bringing about of our salvation. I was trying to think of an example, and hopefully this will help you understand. Allison might choose to bake a cake for me. It probably would be without sugar and for diabetics, but she's going to decide to, to make me a cake. And her desire is that I would have a piece and that I would enjoy it. And I may choose to take a piece and to enjoy it. But my taking a piece of that cake and enjoying it does not give me any right to take any credit for the actual making of that cake. Allison made it. And it's the same with salvation. Salvation is the work of God. He saved us from ourselves. And He is the cause of our salvation. He did it. And if you've experienced that new birth, you've experienced and you've tasted God's mercy. We've talked a lot about God's mercy this morning. You know, one of the concerns that I had and and a lot of the stuff that I've read uh, over the years, really, about what we talked about last week, this whole uh, subject of election, is that to understand that God has chosen you, that you are God's elect, might leave some of us feeling kind of boastful, kind of proud. Hey, God chose me. I'm one of his elect. God has given us new birth according to his great mercy. That word mercy, that deals with any pride, any boasting that we may have in ourselves. Scott McKnight, who's one of the other commentators I'm using, he defines mercy here as the pity that God shows to humans in spite of their sin and because of their total helplessness to right their wrong. We don't receive the new birth because we deserve it, because we've earned it, because there's something about us that makes us worthy of it. We are given the new birth simply and solely because of God's grace. God's grace. God giving us what we don't deserve. And it's because of God's mercy. God not giving to us what we really deserve. And again, I think some of us find ourselves failing to grasp the greatness of our salvation because we fail to realize the the pitifulness of our position before God in sin that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2. Because when we feel a little bit good about ourselves, that that somehow we kind of earned part of our salvation because of who we were or what we did or what family we come from or what church we might have been brought up in, we'll fail to grasp the fullness of the greatness of our salvation. But if you're like Peter, who realized he didn't deserve it, 
Even before he was restored and he knew that Jesus had risen from the dead, like Daryl was sharing with us, he went fishing because he figured he might as well just go back to his old way of life. He realized what he had was solely because of God's grace. What a great God we have. He has given us new birth. And then Paul, or sorry, Peter, that's the problem with sharing Paul's verses when you're talking about Peter. If I say Paul and I mean Peter, you'll hopefully understand. Peter continues uh, in, in, verse, in our verses this morning. So he has given us new birth and he's brought us into a living hope. A colleague of mine who lives in the States, I've been working with him for about 20 years. Uh, his family, uh, he was brought up into a family that was involved in the fine wire industry. So in the steel industry and drawing fine wire from steel rod. And uh, not too many years ago, he sold the family business. And gave all of his business and all of his customers to a company in Florida. Uh, he was from Illinois. Uh, in Florida and uh, went to work for this company in, in, in Miami area. About a year ago, not even a year ago, he left all of that and was given an opportunity to work for a German company who wanted to open up their sales network in, in, in the U.S. And, and into Canada. And I kind of follow, his name is Kelly, I follow him from what company he is to the next company. So I've been working with him uh, with this German company. I was talking to him just a couple of days ago. If you follow the news and if you know anything about the steel industry, that uh, the U.S. has now imposed a tariff on steel and aluminum other than coming from Canada and from Mexico for now into the U.S. And so my friend Kelly gave up the family business brought all of his business to a company in Florida, left all of his customers in contact with that company in Florida, and started to work for a German company who was exporting steel wire into North America and found out on Thursday, with the 25% tariff that's now added to his pricing, he's priced right out of the market. And I said to him, Kelly, how are you coping? Because like, this is devastating. He said, Brent, this would have shaken me five years ago. He says, but because of my faith as a Christian, I know my life is in good hands. You see, he didn't build his hope on the things of this world. You see, if you build your hope on the economy uh, or your career or your investments or even family and friends, it's all going to come to nothing. Because the economy is shaky at best. You can lose your job tomorrow. Stock market could crash. And life as we know it on earth, it always comes to an end. And yet that's the only hope that the world has to offer. That's the only hope that people outside of Christ have to build on. And yet it always comes to nothing. Because it's built on futile things. The Bible says it's, it's, a, it's a dead hope. In fact, Scripture throughout tells us that those who are not in Christ are lost and without hope. Because all they have to put their hope in is futile things. But what Peter says here is if you have been given new birth, if you've chosen to become a follower of Jesus... You have a living hope. And what is that living hope? That living hope is a, is a clear 
vision of what God has for you and will do for you uh, in the future. And that's what Peter's readers needed to hear. They needed to know that regardless of the circumstances and the suffering and the trials and the losses that they were experiencing here on earth, they knew that they had an eternal uh, destiny of heaven praising this great God forever. And that made the trials and, 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 the, and the difficulties of life easier to bear. And, and the, the same is true for us. If we can truly believe that we have a living hope, that we have a hope that, that isn't built on the things of this world, but it's, it's built in heavenly things and, and in God and what he has promised for us and what he's going to do for us and, and what lies for us in the future, it makes, the, it makes the, the road bumps and the breakdowns easier to handle in life. But how can we be sure that the hope that God offers us that he brings us into is any better than the hopes of this world. How can we be certain it's not going to fail or falter or become shaky? The reason why is because it comes with a guarantee. It's based on the resurrection of Jesus. You see, our new birth was achieved by the death of Jesus on the cross. And everything that the death of Jesus was to accomplish was validated, was, was guaranteed, was given the stamp of approval by God the Father when he rose Jesus from the dead. And our new birth results in us being brought into this living hope. And it's living because the very basis of our hope is Jesus Christ and he rose from the dead. And it's forever living hope because Jesus lives forevermore. I know that there are people, even within this community, who want so much to grasp the greatness of their salvation. Who want it to be more than just facts. They want it to burn inside their heart and in their mind so that they are bursting with praise. But they wonder why they just can't seem to, to, to be able to, to cling on to that living hope. And it's often because we're building our hope on the things of this world too. That we are looking to our, the economy and, and to, our, to our friendships and our relationships and, and to our bank account and to our possessions to be our hope. And they always prove to be shaky. We need to have an eternal perspective. We need to have a perspective and a focus that is placed on our living hope. And so what a great God we have. He's given us new birth. He's brought us into a living hope. And then Peter continues that he's brought us into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this was great news for Peter's readers because they'd lost so much. They had lost their possessions, their jobs, in some cases their family, their home, their hometown. Any chance at receiving an inheritance? This was great news. Because Peter's saying to him, you've been brought into an inheritance that time nor circumstances can even touch. 
And what is that inheritance? Well, the Bible tells us so much about what the inheritance is for those who have been given new birth. It's the future fulfillment of our salvation. It's an eternity in heaven, being able to worship and praise this great God. It's it's everything that comes along with Jesus. The Bible says that if you put your faith in Jesus, not only to become new creation, we become joint heirs with Jesus. It's like essentially everything that's Jesus is, is ours. I can't wrap my head around that. I, I got a friend who married into a very wealthy family, probably worth tens of millions of dollars. He can't wrap his head. He came from a very poor family. He can't wrap his head around the fact that he is now an heir in, in this family wealth. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to, to become uh, a, a, an heir uh, in the Bill Gates family. We become joint heirs with Jesus. And even better than that, our inheritance is God himself. Psalm 16, God is our joy. He's our possession forever. We will have unhindered fellowship with God for eternity. And that's our inheritance. And how can we know that that inheritance won't fail? My friend who I just told you about, who can't wrap around his head that he's, he's, a, he's an heir in a family uh, that's worth tens of millions of dollars, when he got married, he had to sign a prenuptial. So the marriage falters, so too does the inheritance. But our inheritance is guaranteed because it's built on the same basis of our living hope. It's guaranteed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Our inheritance is secure. Our inheritance is secure, but what about us? And that's the last point that that Peter says. What a great God. Not only is our inheritance guaranteed, so too are its heirs. My family had a a family friend. I was just a child uh, when I got to meet him several times. He was a policeman in Barrie, and he was the tiniest man. Like, I looked at him probably as a 10 or a 12-year-old, and I'm like, okay, how in the world was, are you a policeman? And he would love to tell us kids stories about how he would go into some of the most difficult situations in Barrie, into seedy bars, strip joints, um, you name it, where there was trouble brewing, and how he could walk in with confidence, knowing that he was going to resolve the situation. And I go, okay, like, is he carrying a machine gun? Has he got a bomb? Is he... He loved to tell us a story because then he always followed it up to tell us about his partner. His partner was six foot eight, 320 pounds. And they used to love where he and, and uh, Ralph, you're here, Ralph, you are big compared to how big he was. And he would walk into a bar where there was a fight going on and he would say, okay, everyone settle down. And they would just kind of look up. Yeah, who's going to make us? You and who? Oh, my partner. And then and would walk this mammoth of a guy and there was peace. And so he had great confidence and comfort knowing he, he, he was policing with the power of his partner at his back. Imagine the comfort and confidence that we can have and Peter's readers can have knowing that as we go through trying to survive and thrive in a world that's not so friendly towards us and Peter's readers who are facing a whole lot more persecution physically and scary persecution than we probably are, the comfort and confidence knowing 
that God's got our back. That we have the power of God watching over our very life and our very soul. That, that we're not going to get lost in the process. That, that things aren't going to go out of control. That God's going to go, oops, ah, I forgot about him or her. It doesn't matter what happens to us. Tragedy, persecution, near death, even death. God has our soul. And nothing can take that away from him. Nothing can snatch us from his hand. That's the confidence that we have. That's the great salvation that we have. That's the great God that we have who would give us new birth, bring us into a living hope, bring us into inheritance that can never spoil, fade, or perish and watches over us and gives us, gives us divine protection. And why does this all matter? Because we live in a world that's increasingly not friendly to our faith. And if you belong to Auburn here, you know that you're, you're part of a vision here. We believe that God's called us to work together to bring people back to Jesus. We are going to face opposition. And if we're going to survive and thrive and leave a lasting impact on this neighborhood, we have to be grasping the greatness of our salvation. Because we have a great God. And it's all because of His amazing grace. Daryl, lead us in that uh, last song, would you?